The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You know, as human beings, there's really basically only two ways to live. I know that sounds like a giant oversimplification. Um, You're saying, no, there's lots of different ways to live. You could be a Republican or a Democrat. You could be uh, an organic food eater or a non-organic food eater, an essential oil person or a non-essential oil person. Not that there's any wrong with either of those things. Um, <laughs> uh, but there are essentially two ways of living your life. The first way, we're going to call it the self-life. Okay, the self-life. The self-life is essentially living according to your own will, the things that you want to do. It's living out of your own strength, and it's living for your own glory. Okay, that's the self-life in a nutshell. The other way you can live is the surrendered life. The surrendered life is just the opposite. It's living according to God's will. It's living out of God's strength, and it's living for God's glory. Uh, The question I really want to put before you this morning, and I would love for you to chew on as we go through this material, is which one are you? Are you living a self-life or are you living a surrendered life? And if you're like me, it's probably a mix. You're a mixed bag. Sometimes you're leaning on self, sometimes you're leaning on the Lord. Um, But in reality, you're moving one of two directions. Either you're moving towards the self-life where in that world you are God and you run things or you're moving towards the surrendered life where he is God and he's running things and you're, you're moving one of those two directions. Okay, And what determines whether you run that direction towards self or this direction towards surrender, what determines that in a nutshell is what you think about God. Okay, What you think informs what you do, right? What you think informs what you do. And typically people that are living a self-life believe two things about God, not always both at the same time, but at least one of these two things. And the two things they typically believe is either God is not good or he's not capable. Either he's not strong enough or he's not good enough. These are the two lies that manifest themselves. And and oftentimes we choose to believe those two lies in order that we might live a self-life. Okay? Those are the two questions. So in Mark chapter 4, if you're there, we're just going to look really quickly at this passage. In verse 35, it says, On that day when evening had come and he had said to them, the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern. Who? Jesus. Jesus is in the stern. This is, this is a small boat, and there's a, a little space underneath for him to be able to lay down and rest. And Jesus was a busy guy. He got tired, um, and so he's snoozing. He's asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? So this is a typical situation. Uh, What do we do in life? We all get together and we go somewhere. That's why we're all going to church together, right? We say we are all going somewhere. Heritage is going somewhere. And whenever we go somewhere for the Lord, what happens? A storm comes. Storms come. Can I get an amen? 
Okay, storms come. And especially when we say we're going to get in with Jesus and go do something. <laughs> storms really come when that happens. So these guys, they're in the boat with Jesus. He's taking a nap. A storm comes, and it's not just a little storm. It's a massive storm. Okay, and the first thing that they do is not go wake up Jesus. The first thing they do is try to manage it. Okay, because as you can see the way they address him, I don't think that they were sure whether or not he could fix this one. What do they call him? They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They don't call him Lord. They don't call him God. They don't call him sovereign. They call him teacher. So first of all, I don't think that they actually think he's capable of fixing this. But they get desperate and the water is coming over the, the sides and, and they, they all of a sudden get kind of frustrated. Does this guy care? Doesn't he love us? And so they go on and they, what do they do? They question his love for them as well as questioning his capability. Those two questions I said, remember? Is God good and is he capable? The disciples are wrestling with this moment. They're, they're wrestling with this question for themselves. Is he good? Is he capable? Is the question. And if he's not, then therefore it's on me to figure it out. That's the result. Now look what happens. Verse 39, he woke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Can you just picture this? I know you're familiar with this story, but just picture this. Jesus is just snoozing through this. How? I don't know. He ain't worried about it. They get him up, he stands up, he takes a look around, and he says, hush! And creation, the power, the raw power of creation stops. It obeys him. He speaks and it obeys him. It's miraculous. It's amazing. And the disciples are just watching this. Like, what just happened? How did he do that? There was a great calm in verse 40. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? You're thinking, what do you mean why are we so afraid? Are you kidding? Did you see the size of those waves? Did you see them coming over the side into our boat? Did you understand that we were literally about to perish? We were this far from drowning? What do you mean, why were you afraid? I mean, Jesus' question is almost insulting, isn't it? Why were you afraid of creation? Have you still no faith? His estimation of their faith has to do with fear. He's saying, you have no faith because you're afraid of the wrong thing. Look at 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, now, now they're fearing again, aren't they? But what's the fear directed at this time? It's directed at Christ. It's no longer fear of creation, it's fear of creator. They have a paradigm shift here. In this moment, they've gone from fearing this thing that God made to fearing the one that made it. <laughs> they've had a paradigm shift. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's incredible, isn't it? Now in that moment, they realize he is in fact capable. He is in fact the Lord. He is in fact powerful. And there's a paradigm shift there. See, where we go wrong and where we get into self-life is we start thinking that creation is our greatest uh, thing we should worry about. Creation is the biggest thing we should be fretting and stressing, and, and in reality, that's simply not true. The disciples learned that right away. Now, in our text, in Acts chapter 12, if you want to flip over to Acts chapter 12 now, um, 
In our text, we really see a similar kind of a thing. What we see is we see a contrast between the self-life and the surrendered life. We see a a contrast between the self-life and the surrendered life. First, we see a man who's completely doing it on his own. He is the epitome of the self-life, the self-made man, the self-centered man, the self-worshipping man. His agenda is self. His goal is self. It's all about him. We see him fearing creation rather than creator. We see him waging war against Christ for the praises of men, living as though he has control. And then we also see a church who's in a storm. We see a church in a storm, yet they choose to go over the head of the storm directly to the one that created it directly to the one that has power. They choose not to lean on self, but to surrender to God. So this is the text that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 12. Let me give you a little bit of background before we jump in. I know you guys have been tracking through the book of Acts like we have, so um, let me just get you up to speed. The gospel is exploding all over the ancient world. It started just like Jesus said it would. It started in Jerusalem and like leaven in, in bread It's expanding all over the ancient world. It starts in Jerusalem, it moves its way into Judea, it moves its way into Samaria, and then all the way into the regions of the earth. Um, Last week in chapter 11, you guys looked at the church in Antioch, which was the first Gentile church, which was an amazing, an amazing moment. An amazing moment that shows that God has literally created a church of the nations. It's absolutely astounding. It's incredible. Now, what else is happening? The enemy is on full attack, right? The enemy's on full attack because the gospel is on full advance. And whenever the gospel's on full advance, the enemy's on full attack. But is the gospel retreating? No. The enemy, what he does is he sees a bunch of coals and he thinks, I'm just going to stamp this out. And what he's actually doing is he's flinging the coals all over the woods. And now there's fires all over the place. And the gospel's exploding. And we're seeing people in Ethiopia and we're seeing people in Greece and we're seeing all, of the, all over the place getting saved. And from this point forward, the momentum of the gospel cannot be stopped, even though Satan will certainly try. So in our passage, we're going to see the enemy take a full frontal assault at the church, but ultimately he will not overcome because the gospel will not be stopped. The Lord is not only for his church, he is in his church. He's in the midst of the lampstands, carrying the churches in his hands. So we're going to see two things in this chapter, as I said. And here's our outline if you want to jot it down. First, we're going to see the futility of the self-life. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to try to convince you that you should not be living the self-life. Okay? Okay? Secondly, we're going to look at the freedom of the surrendered life. And then we're going to just end by asking the question, how can we live a truly surrendered life? And our text will take us through these points. So first, the futility of the self-life. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of show my cards here. This is who I'm speaking to this morning. I'm speaking to whoever is sitting here this morning living the self-life. Now, some of you are living the self-life secretly. Nobody knows you're living a self-life. You may appear godly, have an appearance of godliness, but ultimately your knee is not bowed to God, it is bowed to you. I want to speak to you this morning. I'm speaking to the people that are like me, who even though I want to live the surrendered life, the self-life is constantly there knocking on my door. And it often comes in and unfortunately has to be pushed back out. 
This is a reality that is always nagging at us as Christians. This desire for us to rule us rather than for us to be ruled by God. This is who I'm speaking to this morning. So first, let me explain to you why the self-life doesn't work. Okay, the first reason the self-life doesn't work is that the self-life must be self-made. Looking at our text now in chapter 12, verse 1, about that time... Herod, note that, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Okay, I have to stop there. I know I've only made it a verse in, but I have to stop there, and I have to explain to you who this guy Herod is, or else this point won't make any sense, okay? Uh, Who is Herod? Herod was essentially the puppet king of Judea, Samaria, the Palestinian area, under the, the, the management of Rome, because Rome owns the world at this point, right? Okay, so, so Herod was basically the puppet king of Rome. He, uh, his story really starts when you understand his grandpa. Okay, uh, his story starts with his grandpa. And you probably are familiar with him. We just probably talked about him in the Christmas season. His grandpa's name was Herod the Great. Or if you're watching VeggieTales, Herod the Grape. Right? Okay. Um, I think it really is his name. Anyways, so his grandpa, Herod the Great, uh, was a really bad dude. He was the one that built the temple. Um, He was the first of the Herods. He removed what was called the Hasmonean family, which were the actual self-ruling appointed leaders of the Jews. He removed them and was basically the person who was trying to be in bed with both the Jews and the Romans at the same time. The Jews hated him. Even though he built them in a magnificent and astounding temple, they still didn't like him. He murdered his kids, like you do, when you're worried and insecure and narcissistic and you think everyone's trying to steal your throne. Okay, he murdered thousands of babies because he heard that there was going to be a king of the Jews coming. And we know who that was? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish animosity towards Herod, uh, towards the Herod dynasty, towards the, the Herod uh, um, family was, was deep and it was thick. After Herod the Great died, a few years after Christ was born, uh, then we get this guy named Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was his nephew Herod Agrippa, you know and are familiar with, he was sleeping with, had divorced his wife, was sleeping with his brother's uh, wife and uh, Herodias, so really great guy, super moral. John the Baptist calls him out, and what does he do to him? Off with his head, okay? He tried and denied Christ. He was more interested in Jesus as a source of entertainment than he was actually the Lord or the king. This was Herod Antipas, really, really a terrible guy. Okay, after he died, then we get the guy we're reading about here, Herod Agrippa. Now, some of you are going, oh, there's more than one Herod. I was always confused by that. That was me, okay, for a long time. Um, I didn't realize there's more than one Herod. There's lots. In fact, there's another one who's going to come up later in the book of Acts, uh, and you'll, you'll meet him later. This is Herod Agrippa, okay? So here in chapter 12, verse 1, Herod Agrippa. Who is Herod Agrippa? Well, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was kind of, as you would imagine, Kind of a narcissistic, kind of an insecure, kind of a self-obsessed, kind of a self-made egotistical guy. He grew up in Rome. He spent a lot of money, uh, worked, uh, worked up a lot of debt in Rome, um, was educated in Rome, even though he was technically a Jewish person. And he basically shot off his mouth multiple times to the point where Rome actually imprisoned him. Okay? Uh, the emperor Tiberius put him in prison because he was saying negative things about the Roman Empire. After Tiberius' death... He was made Herod of 
Palestine, okay? He, he had just about as much power as Herod uh, the Great, but he found himself in this really hard tightrope between the Jews not liking him because he was a Herod and because he was a stooge puppet king and Rome not liking him because he was on thin ice with them. He, he's this really, even this awkward position where he's, he's trying to be this powerful man, but yet he has to try to please everybody. And he's self-made. He's a self-made man. He's eager to keep the balancing act between the Rome and the Jews. And the Jews, the majority Jews, the populace of the Jews, they didn't like him. No wonder. They didn't like him. But you know who did like him? The religious leaders liked him because he made them lots of money. The religious leaders were making money off the temple, and Herod was in bed with that. It was a a money-making scheme. They supplied the temple. The religious leaders supplied the religious hypocrisy. Put the two together and you get a good business model. So about the time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, he killed James. Whoa, first apostle that is martyred right here. Now we've seen others martyred, we've seen Stephen martyred, but this is the James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples, martyred, gone. Herod has him killed with a sword, brother of John, verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. Okay, what's Herod doing here? He's trying to win favor with the religious elite, so he says, hey, these guys really don't like the disciples. How about I have one killed, and we'll see how it goes. James is kind of a test pilot. Let's just see how they react. So he has James, the brother of John, one of the 12 disciples. He has him murdered. And what is the reaction? Applause. Good job, Herod. You're getting rid of these stinking Christians that are frustrating our temple ministry slash money-making scheme. So Herod, who's insecure, who's trying to win as much favor he can, who's who's ultimately a slave to the praises of man, what does he do? He goes and he gets another apostle. This time he gets the number one apostle. This time he gets Peter, the leader of the church. And he wants to have him killed because he's trying to win favor with the Jews. And so what does he do? He has to put him in jail because it's the Passover. You see, here's a man trying to walk walk the tightrope between pleasing the Jews and pleasing the Romans. You can't execute someone during Passover. It's illegal. So he puts him in jail. Imagine how the church is feeling at this moment. They've just lost James. They're about to lose Peter. This is an intense attack. Herod is in control of his own life. Now there's nothing more exhausting. Let me just make a point here. There's nothing more exhausting than doing what Herod is doing. Herod is responsible, he thinks, for his own destiny. This is exhausting. If you're in here right now and you are feeling absolutely exhausted, it may be that you are attempting to be a self-made person. And you might say, now Sam, self-made, we like that. Haven't you seen Shark Tank? You know, the self-made individual. I pulled myself up. Rags to riches stories. We love that. I worked 16, 18, 20 hours. I abandoned my family. As though somehow that is some kind of a good thing now. Burn the candle at both ends, whatever. Like, that's called self-making. That's called, I'm going to take control of my destiny. I'm going to make myself great. And that's 
Herod did, and it's exhausting. Because here's why. Whatever power you take, you have to keep. That's driven so many dictators and so many monarchs mad because they took all this power and then they were stressed about losing it. So what do they do? They kill their kids. God forbid one of their kids comes up and takes their power. Whatever image you put out there, you now have to live up to. You want people to think you're amazing and you start acting like you're amazing? Now you better be amazing. You might get one party to like you, the other party will hate you. That's the reality. It's exhausting. Let me give you a, a test to see if you are uh, living in a self-made, self-life pattern. Are your decisions based on what pleases God or what will further you in your agenda? Does character only matter to you if people see it? Is sin only serious to you if you get caught? Do you constantly find yourself measuring and, keyword, manipulating every situation for your intended purpose. That is exhausting. Manipulating what everyone thinks of you. Managing your image constantly. God forbid someone thinks ill of me. When things go wrong, is it always someone else's fault? When things go right, is it always your doing? Do you see people as stepping stones and cogs and you're moving forward? And we have to ask the question, of course, is anyone really self-made? And the answer is no. No one is self-made. You didn't choose your family. You didn't choose your country. You didn't choose your life. You didn't choose your body. You didn't choose your advantages, your disadvantages. You didn't even create the air you're breathing. You didn't create the water you're drinking, the food that you're eating, the Bible you're holding, the chair you're sitting on. None of us are self-made. Everything is a gift. Everything has been given. For us to sit in the place and say that I am a self-made individual is blasphemy. And our country praises it. And we are exhausted with the pressure, not only from ourselves, but from those around us, that we must be something by our own strength. I want to give you guys permission. In fact, the gospel wants to give you guys permission to stop. Give up. You are not in charge of your life. Praise God. Because you will, you will, you have, you are screwing up your life if you are running it. It's only a matter of time. You can fake it till you make it for a little bit, but not for long. The second point is this. The second reason the self-life doesn't work, not only because you have to be self-made, but secondly, the self-life must be self-sustained and self-satisfied. Look at verse 20. Now, I want to skip ahead in the chapter because I want to cover all of the, the Herod passages first, and then we'll, we'll look at the center. Skip ahead to verse 20, and let's see what happens to old Herod. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, a couple of cities in the north of Israel, coastal towns, they were um, not technically part of his jurisdiction, um, but he uh, had the ability to put sort of sanctions in place to keep them um, from being able to succeed politically uh, and uh, socially. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, that's like his prime minister, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And you've got to believe Herod loves that. Oh, y'all need me for food. I am your key to life. He likes that, okay? 21. On an appointed day in Caesarea, by the way, some of you have been to Israel with me. We went to Caesarea. We stood in this place where Herod is about to give this speech. 
Um, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. Josephus, the historian, the Jewish historian, he records these robes as being silver and glistening in the, the sun. So Herod does this up big, man. He makes the most pompous display he can of his power. He's got all of his suck-ups there. Everyone that thinks he's amazing, all the people that, that want to get something from him, they're all there, they're ready, waiting for him to speak. He's got his best robes on. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting... The voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod has this moment, and you've experienced this moment before, where everything you've always wanted or thought you wanted all of a sudden becomes real. And you have it, you're holding it. When you're a kid, it's Christmas morning. You know, it's like, it's here. I've been looking forward to this. The toys I've wanted, the things I've wanted, it's here, it's in front of me. Herod has the moment, he's always wanted the moment where everyone looks at him and says, this is not a man, this is a God. The problem is, is even though Herod's dream has come true, it's not true, it's a dream. Are these people really impressed with Herod? Or are they telling him what he wants to hear, to get what they want? They're not impressed with Herod at all. They're manipulating him. They're manipulating his egotism. It's the oldest trick in the book. They're giving him what he thinks he wants so that they, he will give them what they need. Now here's the reality. Self-gratification is ultimately not self-satisfying. If you want to live the self-life, then you yourself better be able to self-satisfy. Do you understand what I mean by that? If, if you want to live the self-life, then that means that you have to at some point be enough for you. And your, your affections and your desires have to somehow be enough for you. Is that possible? Some of the most depressing moments in all of our lives are when we get exactly what we want, aren't they? And then this fear comes over us. Why am I so empty? I just got exactly what I thought that I wanted. I mean, it's a terrifying feeling. It's like the feeling when you realize that you're standing on a ledge and you feel like you might fall. You go, all of my affection and direction was headed towards this thing, and now that I have it, I'm miserable. So what do I do? What's the next thing? In this moment, Herod gets exactly what he thought he wanted. The problem with it is that it's not true. He is not God. Here's the thing, guys. We are not self-sustaining creatures. Did you know that? Did you know that it is impossible for you to be fully, now follow me on this, it is impossible for you to be truly happy with anything outside of God himself. Why? Let me give you an example. You take a pile of wood and you, you pile it and you light it on fire and it burns. What happens? The fire has need, doesn't it? Because it's a created thing. The fire has needs. So the fire consumes the wood and the oxygen, and, and then eventually it turns into coals, and eventually it's dust and it's gone. So the fire runs out. It can't burn by itself. It can only burn with something. It needs something because it's a created thing. Now here's Moses. He's walking along, and what does he see? He sees a fire, and it's a bush that's burning. But listen, it's not being burnt. It's not being consumed. It has no need. It's a self-sustaining source. And what is it a picture of? Come on. I'm in a small church now, so I'm used to people talking to me. Okay. 
What is it a picture of? It's a picture of Yahweh. It's a picture of God. He is the only self-sustaining entity being in the universe. We are like fires in the natural world. We consume. We need something, and we, can, we always need more. But yet God is a self-sustaining being. The only way you can ever truly be satisfied is if you are connected to the only source that doesn't need, and that is God. There is an emptiness to self-life that all of us have experienced, and most of us have quickly moved on to the next thing in order not to have to face the pit in our stomach when we realize that what we wanted is nothing near what we actually needed. We are like unplugged vacuum cleaners, or whatever. Think of an appliance. I don't know. <laughs> vacuum cleaners. I don't know. We're, we're, like, we're, we're like, without being plugged in, we have no life in ourselves. Tozer said that need is a creature word. You, listen to me, you are a creature. You cannot exist without creator. It's not possible. Living the self-life is like the toaster or the vacuum cleaner saying, I will live apart from the plug and the wall. You can put some batteries in, they're going to run out. You need a power source. You need a life source. You cannot exist without the life source. You will only ever be satisfied if you are connected to the eternal source of joy, the self-sustaining fire who has no need and has only to give. I think it was Jim Carrey, and I, I didn't look it up, but I think it was Jim Carrey who basically said, I wish everyone could grow up, get everything they wanted, get famous, and realize that it's absolutely miserable. It's absolutely profound. This world cannot satisfy you. Why? Because you have a divine stomach. Your appetite is much too large for this world. There is freedom in that if you see the buffet of what God has to offer you because of who he is. The third reason the self-life doesn't work is that the self-life must be self-ruled. Look at verse 21. Let's see what... What happens with Herod? On the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That sounds kind of bizarre. Does that mean like this is some kind of mummy movie where the worms come out and... You know, no, that's not what this is saying. Josephus actually records this event as well. It turns out, more than likely, most doctors agree, he probably had some kind of a parasitic worm. Josephus reported him falling down and having severe stomach pain, so much so they had to carry him away, and a few days later he passed. He died. But what's happening in this, in this moment is that Herod is referred to as God, but does not correct he doesn't go, oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am not God. No, he actually, he likes it. He embraces it. And what I want you to see here is that the root of the self-life is a God complex. The root of the self-life is a desire to be self-ruled. The, probably the number one reason, I don't have pie charts or statistics to back this up, but probably the main reason that people don't come to Jesus, don't come to the Lord, is a desire to continue to rule their own life. I want to call the shots. It may seem like an oversimplification, but in my experience, people do exactly what they want to do. And coming to the Lord means now I have to reorient what I want. And what I want is the world. 
Okay, that's the reality. So the problem with trying to be God is that you can't be God at the same time as God. It doesn't make any mathematical sense. Zero plus zero equals zero. Okay, you, can't, you cannot be God at the same time as God. It is not physically possible. And Herod, in this moment, he's trying. He wants to be. The only option, if you want to be the Lord of your own life, is to remove and to kill him. And many have tried, have they not? Many have tried. The Herods, the entire Herod family tried. Satan tried. Babylon tried. Nebuchadnezzar tried and was humbled, right? Pharaoh tried. These all, all, most of these men, they considered themselves God in some way. And in order to be God, they had to somehow attack God's rule and reign because he can't be God and they can't be God at the same time. The Pharisees did it. Pilate did it. Judas did it. What is Judas doing when he sells out Christ? He is choosing, I want to be God, not him. Kill him so that I can rule my own life. That's the reality of it. And humanity will continue to wage war on God all the way until the end of the book, even when Jesus is physically reigning on the earth, humanity will rebel. Oh, the depths of our own desire to self-rule. The self-life runs deep in us. There's two problems. Now, please follow me on this. Please lean in here, okay? There's two problems with trying to remove God from your life so that you can be God. The number, first one is this. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It is alignment with the right ones. You might write that down because if you can get this, it's very helpful. Freedom is not the absence of restrictions. It is the alignment with the right ones. See, we have this idea in the West that if I am free, it means I don't have to do what I don't want to do. That's why retirement is like an addictive goal in our culture. Oh, to be free of my RV in a warmer place. I'm not saying anything wrong with retirement. I'm saying it becomes this this pipe dream of freedom, the absence of restriction. I don't have to get up in the morning and listen to my jerk boss tell me what to do. I'm free. I don't have restrictions anymore. Well, let me explain something to you. Restrictions are not part of the fall. Restrictions are reality, pre-fall. Don't believe me? Here's a systematic theological point for you. God is restricted. What? God is restricted by what? What is he restricted by? His own nature. You see, God cannot offend his own nature. He is perfectly just, perfectly loving, and his attributes cannot be offended. He cannot be something he is not. So the idea that God is not somehow omnipotent unless he doesn't have any restrictions is totally not true. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. He cannot. It goes against his nature. The idea that freedom is being free of restrictions is simply not true. In the garden, before the fall, there were restrictions, weren't there? Before sin entered the picture, there was restrictions. Listen to me. We are all slaves to something. That will never change. Even in a perfect, resurrected, redeemed, recreated universe, you will be a slave to something. Okay, you could be in this world and, and be the partying, the classic quintessential partying teenager and say, I'm not going to live under my parents. I'm going to run away and I'm going to be free. Is that teenager free? No. 
He or she is now a slave to a different master. Instead of mom and dad, now they're a slave to drugs, to alcohol, to whatever. They're a slave to their friends. That's what I was in high school. I was a slave to the image that I thought my friends had of me. Okay, well, what about the more responsible person? What about the businessman who's working too many hours trying to make freedom for himself so that he can make enough money so that no one has to tell him what to do? Is he free or is he a slave? What's he a slave to? He's a slave to his own desires. He's a slave to his own money. He's still a slave. The question is not, how can I be free from restrictions? The question is, which restrictions fit my nature? Because you're a created being, you have restrictions. The best example of this is given by Tim Keller. He, he says, think about a fish in the water. What if a fish swimming in the water thinks, I want to be free. And this water is just so limiting. Look at the, look at the outside of the water. I'm going to flop out of the water and I'm going to go, be free in the land. Is the fish free on the land? Maybe free to go out on the land, but is it most free in the land? No, it's going to die. The fish is most free in the environment that God created it to be in. You want to be free? You want to be free? Say yes. Oh, good job. You actually did it. To what God? Wow, that was good. Was that you, Mitch? Did you do that? Oh. Uh, you want to be free? Say yes to what God has made you to do. Anything outside of that is not freedom, it's slavery. You think that you're free in sin? You're slave to sin. But Jesus came to set you free, to bring you back into your original intended purpose. When was Jesus most free? You know, it's interesting. Jesus, uh, the creator of the universe who took on human flesh, he submitted. Isn't that weird? And he was most free when he was most submitted to the Father's will. That was the reality of it. Self-rule is not freedom from God, it is slavery to self and to your own misguided desires which lead you to unsatisfying sources. Let me ask you a question. Who do you want ruling you? A good, capable God who loves you or an incompetent, egotistical, needy, insecure tyrant who like a slave driver will never be satisfied with your performance? In case you're wondering, that's you. Who do you want in charge of your life? You don't know what you want? You don't know what's best for you. You have no omniscience. You don't understand what's happening in the future. You will never, ever, ever be satisfied living your own life. Only in submission to ultimate reality, which is God's will and God's mind, will you find true freedom. It is so true. The freest I am is when I am the most surrendered to God's ultimate rule. Herod is one of thousands of examples of people that said, I will rule myself. And here's the other reason, the other problem with trying to remove God is you can't. You just can't. So don't even try. Look at what happens. Because he did not give glory to God, he was eaten by words. God struck him dead. Why? Because Herod can't be God at the same time as God. Now, Luke's a physician, right? So Luke could have said, hey, here's what happened. Um, what happened was, he says he got eaten by worms, but he doesn't really go into detail exactly what it was um, that, that got him. He says the reason that he died was why? Because he did not give the glory to God. Luke, the doctor, says that's the reason he died. It wasn't because of the worms. It was because he did not give glory to God. God struck him dead. Now, God graciously allows humans to live in the delusion that they are in charge, but listen to me, they're not. He's so patient, isn't he? I mean, he just lets us think 
You know, he just lets us think that we know what we're doing and we're in charge. He is in charge. We have no power. The self-life, if I really wanted to make a case against it, I would just say it doesn't even exist. You may think you're the boss. It's pretend. You're not the boss. God is. And whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, he, at the end of the day, is the boss. You will bow a knee either way. Read the end of the book. Creation will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is the Lord. So what does surrender actually look like? Let's look at the rest of this passage briefly. What does surrender, what does the surrendered life actually look like? I just want to give you three quick dimensions of the surrendered life. And we see this in the church, how they respond to Herod's attack. Verse five, first thing, first thing is that the surrendered life gives you access to ultimate power. Verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So Peter is sitting here in prison. The thing is looking dire. Uh, Herod's really just having his way with the church. He's about to be executed the next day. And what does the church do? The only thing they can do. They fear the creator instead of the creation. Instead of trying to come up with some harebrained scheme to break him out, they go directly to the power source. And this is what we have access to in the surrendered life. We have access to the power source, the creator of the creation. Why are they praying? Because they recognize their own powerlessness. You know, and prayer is actually a really good indicator of what you really think. Prayer shows you where you think your jurisdiction ends and where you know his begins. Depending on how long it takes you to pray for something shows how much strength you think you probably actually have. Super convicting for me. Super convicting for me. The church gathers together into the night in Mary's house to pray because they know who ultimate power is and they know that it's with God. The second thing that the surrendered life does is it surrenders to ultimate knowledge. Look at verse six. I love this. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, we're talking like minutes, hours before Peter's gonna be brought out and executed. Peter is what? What's he doing? What's he doing? He's snoozing, sleeping. He's sleeping. Who does that remind you of? Let me see if I can help you remember. There's a storm, you know, and there's crazy stuff going on. And he's just sleeping. Peter ain't worried. Now, I don't know. He might have been a little worried. I don't know. He probably was a little worried, but he's sleeping. And he's sleeping so deep. Look at this. Bound with two chains. And the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Soldiers all over the place. It's probably pretty uncomfortable. Verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone. Why? Because this angel been in the presence of God. When you're in the presence of God, you glow. Um, so he lights up the room, and Peter doesn't wake up. He's still sleeping. So what does the angel do? He struck Peter. Now that's a severe Greek word. It's a severe, it's the same word that was used when Peter lopped off Malchus's ear. I mean, this angel is probably just like stinking humans, you know, like what? Like, ding, like I'm glowing, like hello, Peter, you know, he's still, so he just goes, wham, like, hey, wake up, buddy, like you're, we're getting out of here. So he, he strikes him on the side, woke him up saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. I love that. I love that. We can not, not only can we access ultimate power through prayer, but we also can surrender to God's ultimate knowledge. 
Now, here's the reality of this, though, is that James did not get set free, did he? James died, and Peter was set free. And that's a sobering balance to this text. Lest we go, if we pray, none of us will ever suffer. God says, no, you must pray, but sometimes some of you will suffer. But we are to surrender to the ultimate knowledge of God. Tim Keller says, God not only hears your prayers, but he hears what you would pray if you had all knowledge. As Christians, we have access to his ultimate power. We also have access to his ultimate knowledge, and we surrender to it. And that is a restful place to be. And lastly, we experience ultimate triumph. Look at verse 8. We'll read the rest of the story. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real. He thinks this is all a dream. But he thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard that came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. I'm like, <laughs> this gate, it's like, I'm going to open, okay, of its own accord. I mean, it just opens for him. This is a miraculous, a supernatural event. They went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Peter came to himself. He said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people uh, we're expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Okay, that's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's Mary, the mother of John Mark, whose other name was Mark, uh, where many were gathered together and were praying. So they're praying for Peter, actively praying. Now, there's some serious humor here. You've got to see this. They're actively praying for Jesus, or for Peter, and Peter comes and knocks on the door while they're praying for him. It's hilarious. Okay. And, <laughs> and then a servant girl named Rhoda, oh, Rhoda, she was a little ditzy, came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Hey, guys, Peter's here. Okay, well, you could let him in. I mean, for Pete's sake, right? That was a bad pastor joke. Bad pastor joke. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Okay. <laughs> Oh, man. Sorry, I skipped a verse. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They're being loud. They're jumping up and down. They're freaking out. In verse 17, motioning to them with his hand, he says, be silent. He doesn't want him to give away that he's there. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. That's a different James, by the way. And he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. He went and pouted at his vacation house in Caesarea. Okay. So what do we see here? We experience ultimate triumph. Step back. I know we kind of got into some of the weeds there a little bit. Step back and look at this whole picture. Luke is painting this narrative. Uh, the church is advancing and then the church is in despair. The church turns to God, and what does God do? He delivers the church. He delivers the church. Herod loses. God wins. This is the point. The saints are preserved, okay? The gospel advances in the face of opposition. We read in verse uh, 24, um, but the word of God, what? Increased and multiplied. So Luke's ultimate point here in this chapter is, hey, even though there's a, a, an enemy who's fighting you, the kingdom still advances. The gospel's still advancing. It goes out. And then shortly after, we see Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey um, go 
and continue. So, so see the allegory here. It's beautiful. There's a gospel allegory here. We are imprisoned. God comes into that prison. He removes our chains. He leads us out, and then he smites our enemies. Isn't that beautiful? This is a microcosm of an eternal reality. Okay, this is what God is going to do. It's the big picture. That's a beautiful thing. So we experience ultimate triumph. Now, lastly, let me just conclude and sum up here. How do you overcome the self-life? Hopefully, I've convinced you you don't want to live the self-life. How do you overcome it? I'll just leave you with two things. Okay, two things. First of all, behold the greater power. Behold the greater power. Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, the, 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 Solomon literally says in Proverbs, if you want wisdom, fear God. Fear God. This is what happens. Let me tie this back into our introduction, okay? This is what happens when the wind and waves are coming and Jesus speaks and they obey him. They go from fearing creation to fearing Jesus. And wisdom starts there. It starts there. It starts with Isaiah flat on his face, beholding the glory of God and the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. I mean, he's terrified of the power of God, of Yahweh in heaven. He's terrified. And and he immediately says, whatever it is, I say yes. Send me, I'll go. So you want to live the surrendered life? First of all, understand the power of God. But don't stop there. See, there's one more thing you need to see. Uh, Jesus didn't go home after the episode in the sea. He had some more things to teach the disciples, didn't he? He didn't just want them to understand that he was the most powerful being in the universe. He needed them to understand. Listen to me. He needed them to understand that the most powerful being in the universe loved them. Fear is not adequate. Fear is not adequate. My dad used to sit and tell me when I was a kid, son, I don't want you to go to hell. And I was terrified of hell. And I would pray prayers in my bed at night, Lord, please save me. Yet simultaneously knowing that my knee was not bending. Not wanting to to have to experience eternal torment, but at the same time not wanting to give up my sin never was an adequate enough motivation for me to change. You know what it was? It was seeing his goodness. I realize that he not only is the most powerful being in the universe, he loves me. You remember our first two questions? Is he capable? Is he capable? Yes. Yes. Is he good? Yes. Yes. If you are living in a place of self-think and self-life, you must believe those two things today. He is capable. And he is good. I think of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation. He gets caught up into this vision and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning in heaven and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. His his hair is white, his eyes are ablaze. 
He's the most powerful being John has ever seen in his entire life. It is the Lord Jesus, and you better believe John was frightened in that moment. But can you imagine the next thought that hits John's mind? <laughs> That's my Jesus. He knows me. I used to spend time laying on his breast. He, this is the Jesus that I walked with. He loves me. He knows me. He knows my name. Not only is he the most powerful person in the universe, he loves me and is for me. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and they know me. Is he good? Yes. Is he capable? Yes. Which will you choose? Will you choose to live your own life or will you choose to live the surrendered life? Which will it be? If you have been living, running from God, trying to be the Lord of your own life, I invite you this morning to consider the capability and the goodness of God. Not only is he capable of catching you, he'll catch you. He's good. He's good. It's his goodness that leads you to repentance. Amen? Let's all stand. We're going to have some worship. Father, once again, we just thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we have a place to run. I pray that as we experience those terrifying moments, Lord, when we realize that we are not adequate, that we don't know what we're doing, when we realize that we are unsatisfied in the things of this world, that we know, Lord, we may not have, we may not have all the answers, but we know who does. Lord, we know that you are the source. You are the living water. You are the vine. We are the branches. You are the, the self-sustaining fire. We are created beings with needs. And we bring them to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do work in us. Lord, as the flesh is struggling, trying to get us to rule our own life, even like Satan did in the garden. Lord, that we would choose to bend our knee to you and you alone. For you are worthy, God. God, you are good. And Lord, for those that don't see that or believe that, could they know it now? In the name of Jesus.